Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Leanne Tikaru about deprescribing medications. Leanne is a prescribing pharmacist with over 25 years' experience across a wide range of settings. She has worked for the Quality Safety Commission and also BPAC. Leanne was a founding member of the Maori Pharmacists Association and was the inaugural recipient of the Clinical Pharmacist of the Year Award for pushing others to strive for clinical excellence in a competent, culturally and safe paradigm. Within the general practice environment, she aims to optimise safe prescribing whilst decreasing morbidity and mortality. Welcome, Leanne. Oh, kia ora, Louise. Thank you for having me. We're going to start today by discussing a case. The case is of a 76-year-old Maori female. She has a past medical history of hypertension, depression, hyperlipidemia, osteoporosis, and gout, which is currently in remission. She is taking multiple medications, including an ACE inhibitor, a beta blocker, a statin, benzodiazepine, and an SSRI. She was also on a bisphosphonate. Periodically, she takes a PPI and a non-steroidal. Recently, she has had falls. She appears to be frail. She presents with her family, asking if she can stop some of the above medications. Leanne, how would you approach this case? A lot of layers to that question, Louise. And uh, uh, perhaps a, a, way, a good way for me to start, though, is what I did want to preface this podcast with. And uh, I really would like to implore any listeners to be mindful of balance. And I certainly understand the focus for our kōrero today is around over-prescribing, shall we say, Mm. and the prescription of multiple medicines, but to be cognizant that that's not always inappropriate. It's almost like the term polypharmacy conjures up something that's quite negative. So there is appropriate polypharmacy and inappropriate polypharmacy. And I'm using the term polypharmacy in inverted commas, knowing that there's certainly more than one definition of polypharmacy, but generally it's taken to mean that a person is on more administering five or more medicines and what we know about that circumstance is that statistically of course the more medicines there are the greater the chance of pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic interactions and hence drug morbidity, hospitalizations, you know the increased likelihood of impaired mobility um, and you know dare I say it even death So there are a whole lot of sequelae there in terms of multiple medicines, so yes, appropriate to highlight this, but I prefer to think of inappropriate prescribing in totality, and uh, that could be a combination of medicines or a single medicine, so even if it's one medicine and it's inappropriate, it's still important, and... uh, I was part of the polypharmacy atlas that the Health Quality and Safety Commission have released and, you know, we did at times there look at single medicines as well. So, yes, really good to highlight this and you mentioned frailty there as well, Louise, and certainly a large body of evidence detailing the increased likelihood of adverse drug reactions if a person is frail. So absolutely we need to keep our eye on that. However, I guess where I'm coming from, I'm also extremely mindful of unmet need and unmet need according to ethnicity, specifically with Māori. And often, you know, there's a long-standing mistrust of Western medicines, you know, in inverted commas, you know, that might be intergenerational. So the media doesn't always serve us well in that regard, I believe. And, uh, you know, if I think of sort of more recently, uh, you know, if I think of, say, Hamish Jamison's study and, you know, 
fabulous research, great quality, we absolutely need it. You know, they looked at more than 70,000 people you know, that had an interise assessment and looked at medicines, anticholinergic sedatives and, you know, tracked that back to falls and the, the awful sequelae that can happen from that. So, you know, absolutely need that research, but the headlines at the time, so the TV news, the headline was, over-medication is injuring and killing elderly people. World first New Zealand study shows, you know, so for people that are in that situation where they're a little bit mistrusting, uh, you know, medicines aren't the kind of the normal thing. I was on the east coast of the North Island when that study came out and, you know, I had multiple people say to me, Celine, I told you those medicines were poisoning us and, you know, without understanding the background behind that, that it wasn't frailty, it wasn't about trying to address unmet need and likewise uh, with the Esprit trial, you know, the Monash study and aspirin and the headlines around that aspirin is so risky so I really do want to emphasize sorry Louise it's taking a little while but you know it should always be about rationalization individualization I guess optimization which by default it has to occur with the person or whānau in front of you and if we're considering equity to medicines in this country which I assert that we should do and we have to do you've got to keep a balanced perspective so I guess coming back to your case there Probably the start that I would have, well, I mean, of course, I'd thank the whānau and the kui for coming to discuss this as opposed to self-cessation, which does happen as well. Um, you know, I'd be asking why, what's driving this, you know? Is it that they've heard something in the news or is it that there are actual side effects or perceived side effects? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'd, I'd want to have the kind of underpinning of that. Uh, you know, I'd want to talk through their wishes. You know, certainly it's about supporting them and really importantly to empower people to make these decisions. You know, I always talk to people about, you know, they're the experts of their own bodies and they have their own beliefs and prior experiences, etc. And if we as clinicians can bring our skill set and form a partnership that enables their priorities to be met, well then, you know, surely that's gold for all of us. I would be probably then going on to clinical indication and benefit, you know, is that clinical indication still relevant? Of course you're going to do your own physical assessment and see if those classifications you mentioned are still relevant, Louise. First one you mentioned on the list that I'm struggling to see a clinical indication for would be the beta blocker. You know, so is this a legacy of, uh, you know, the prescription when many years ago beta blockers might have been first line for hypertension? Uh, you know, so is that the scenario or is it that this Māori lady now has AF which we know is more prevalent or, you know, perhaps heart failure? So if it's a HEF-REF person, if you've got reduced ejection fracture, uh, you know, should we be looking to actually titrate up the beta blocker? So, of course, you know, you're doing all of this, looking at the appropriateness of the medication. Uh, you're discussing what they're actually taking. You know, that's always an interesting conversation, isn't it? You know, what you think people might be taking as opposed to what they are administering are often not in alignment, and that includes things that they might be purchasing over the counter or, um, you know, people often talk to me about using Rungwarako, and that's something that I'm always very supportive of, but also mindful that we, you know, in particular need to be careful with 
drugs have narrow therapeutic margins. I always say, say to people, look, you know, that's fabulous, um, but I might need to monitor a little bit more often. You know, so if I'm thinking of the thyroxines or the digoxins or the warfarin-type medicines, you know, it's something that, you know, I really want to support them holding on to something that is, is meaningful and important to them and enabling that to occur, but equally working alongside of that. I would be thinking of how long these medicines have been prescribed for, you know, that duration, and, and I guess looking for that prescribing cascade. You mentioned a PPI there, Louise, and, and the NSAID, you know, so I guess that comes back to the condition as well. I, I think you said gout was in remission. Is it actually in remission? Are they using the, you know, NSAID and the PPI? or You know, so I guess it's about ascertaining all of those things. Um, I guess it's my place to start from. Leanne, we mentioned frailty and falls in this case. Does this come into the way that you de-prescribe and how do you personally assess a frail person or frailty? Oh, I think it's very important to assess function, Louise, for all those reasons that you know are well described from others far more learned than I. I think Chris Cameron is the kind of guru in this space. But the bottom line is that frailty certainly impacts on life expectancy. Many frail elderly, they've got a life expectancy that's worse than most cancers, you know, so less than two years. They've you know, increased risk of an adverse drug reaction. So, you know, you're, you're certainly, uh, you know, are assessing for that. Uh, how, how do I assess? I Well, I personally buy into the paradigm that the consultation starts in the waiting room. You know, your observations as a clinician start then. You're watching the person rise from a seated position, walk into your room, their gait. Are they using walking aids, their state of appearance, any dyspnea? I remember reading a Lancet article hmm, probably a couple of decades ago now, and it said, you know, do your patients stop talking to you while walking to your room? And, you know, that, that was a, an indicator of poor prognosis. So, and look, I recognize me saying that is uh, probably goes to, to most people that it should go without saying, but I have seen an increasing practice where healthcare assistants are showing people to rooms and, uh, you know, I, I think that you miss a bit of gold actually in that part. So perhaps I'm a little bit old-fashioned leading on from that the, in part of my tanga process where I'm, you know, connecting with people and, and if I've never met them before or catching up, you know, discussing their function and uh, how active or how much energy they have, you know, if it's someone that used to... that loves gardening, are they still getting out there? If they're living alone, who's doing their shopping? Are they able to do that themselves? Are they able to cook their own meals? So, you know, kind of a little bit of a scoping out in, in that initial kind of, like I say, whakawhanaungatanga time. Uh, but then specifically, you know, I'd be looking at things like standing, lying, blood pressures, reduced grip strength, uh, one that is, you know, they do use quite commonly is that tug test, the timed up and go. So sitting in the chair with the arms, you get up, you use whatever you need to walk 10 feet, turn around and sit down. And if you can't complete that within 12 seconds, there is a high risk of falls associated with that. I think also the Edmonton Frail Scale is quite a helpful tool. It is a validated tool because it can, it can give you a degree of frailty. I guess it's not dissimilar to something like a mocker where you can be helped with stratis, stratification. 
you know, so if the Edmonton Frail Scale, for instance, gave you a reading that was above 12, you know that you're dealing with severe frailty. Uh, so, yes, I do think it's important to assess for frailty, and there are ways to do that. The, uh, you know, there are validated tools. Uh, but yeah, a lot of that you can, you know, certainly acquire as part of a conversation as well as, you know, your physical assessment. What I, what I really would like to emphasize probably is that it's important to add frailty to your classification list. I do know, you know, some countries that have software packages that embed an electronic frailty index. I think they call it in their PMS and it actually searches for words and it helps you in that respect. And I'm not aware of that being the case here in New Zealand. So in, in the interim, you know, I do advocate that you add that as a classification. You'll be talking about falls and strategies and using your wider health team, you know, your uh, OTs and your physios to think about falls prevention program. Uh, so yes, if I come back to the second part of your question, Louise, I would be more likely to deprescribe and more likely to deprescribe certain medicines. You know, I'm not a fan of anticholinergics or... You know, maybe hypoglycemics or statins, sedatives if they're frail and the falls risk. I guess what I'm saying is that it reframes your priorities to be less about long-term prevention and more about quality. Uh, you know, the driver is about making a difference for the person in conjunction with their priorities. So a definite yes to de-prescribing. And possibly, Louise, I, I don't know whether this is coming up uh, uh, further along, but less likely to start prescribing medicines in, the, in that cohort as well. And uh, maybe that goes without saying too, but I had a case earlier this week where I had a 88-year-old man uh, sent to see me because uh, well, the note that I had attached was consider starting a beta blocker uh, for suspected heart failure. And uh, his NT Pro BMP resulted at, well, it was greater than 1,500 picomoles per litre. I can't remember the exact amount right now. It had a chest X-ray and heart size was normal and it had increasing dyspnea without orthopnea uh, or PND, but no echo. And I guess the short thing was when, when I met this man, he was certainly ticking all the boxes for frailty. He walked with a walker. He was actually still living independently, but had um, home care four times a day. He'd had three previous emissions for syncope. His priority in life was never to get back in an ambulance and have to go to the hospital for these syncopal episodes. Mm. Uh, and the other thing about this man that I noted he'd had a significant renal impairment, his EGFR was 15 mils per minute mm -hmm. uh, and you know we oh, and we also discussed his kind of you know around his priorities etc and his shortness of breath and he discussed having a 75 year pack history of smoking so we kind of went from you know considering a beta blocker and I was very objective to lay that out in front of him that this medicine the intent of that would be to do this and the aims of treatment would be this and you know it's more about a long term benefit etc and he made the decision himself that you know that that wasn't going to be applicable to him you know when when he was empowered to make the decision and we went from kind of beta antagonism to beta agonism just you know as a what we're waiting for some spirometry but you know, also consider about when you do start medicines would be a uh, message that I would, 
you know, ask people to take heed of. Excellent point, Leanne. There seems to be great anxiety amongst patients and practitioners in stopping medications. What are the consequences of stopping a medication and should we be concerned? Oh, that is quite funny. Yeah, the anxiety in uh, patients, obviously, around certain medicines, although you can't always guess that one. I, uh, I've had an incident where, and I know I'm not the only one, Linda Bryant, I've discussed that with her. She's the expert of all prescribing pharmacists, and she had the same situation with me and a uh, palliative person who steadfastly held on to their statin, you know, despite saying, well, actually, you know, you don't, don't need that one. Now, and this was someone in the very last stages of life, but, you know, to, in my situation, it was a man on a tour of statin, 20 milligrams, and he described it just being so important to his life and to the routine that he had in his life and, you know, and that he really needed to hold on to that and it wasn't interacting or, you know, wasn't doing harm as such. So far be it from me to physically remove it from his property. And he took it on the morning that he died, which, you know, to us makes little sense, but to him made entire sense. So, um, yes, there there is anxiety at time amongst patients and certainly there's anxiety amongst practitioners I'm well aware of that and uh, you know it kind of seems to drive this state of inertia where somebody you know sometimes people do nothing and actually doing nothing is also making a choice as well and obviously it's multifactorial I've worked in secondary care where uh, you know, hospital physicians say, well, that GP is, you know, they know this person really well, so I don't want to step on their toes and I'll leave it in there. And then equally, the GP says, well, they've just, you know, come from a physician assessment. They haven't stopped it, so they must need, want it to stay there. So you kind of have this hiatus where, where nobody's do, actually doing anything. And, uh, you know, that applies to prescribing and de- de-prescribing. So, uh, yes, there can be an anxiety in both quarters and uh, I guess the consequences that you can be thinking of in terms of stopping a medication are well the one that you're hoping for or looking for is a positive one for the patient and uh, you know that really can be enabled if that person is empowered alongside that so that's the positive one. Um, you can also get the cir- circumstance where you have withdrawal event. I know you mentioned an antidepressant earlier, Louise. So something like antidepressant discontinuation syndrome, you know, that it does happen with antidepressants. It can be can be relatively mild or it can be quite severe. You know, if it's a short-acting one, like uh, I think you said an SSRI, so paroxetine, you know, that can be associated with a higher risk of discontinuation. So, uh, you know, those medicines you'd want to be tapering off. You'd want to have a bit of a plan about that. Uh, and, of course, the other consequences that you're concerned that a pre-existing disease might reappear you know if it's say it's an anticoagulant in somebody who has a you know high frailty score or a high uh, you know frail frail if they're highly frail well then you know you might want you might think goodness you know so they've got a chads vasc of three and I'm stopping their anticoagulant are they going to have a stroke you know so again it's about making sure that this is all underpinned by patient preference. Yes, absolutely. There's always that concern, isn't there, that we're actually going to cause more harm by stopping. Mm -hmm. So what should our plan look like when we're stopping medicines? Should we use a stepwise approach? For many years, I've been using a kind of a 
a default that I've now recognised is the the same as what sign the Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines Network use, and it's about kind of categorising or identifying the medicines that are more likely to be high risk, or you know that they're you know whether they're even still appropriate, and that's looking at I guess the kind of more essential drugs, maybe you know the levothyroxine or. Uh, the next category may be the prevention drugs, so more about the long-term management, so statins or bisphosphonate, oral hypoglycemics in there. Then you've got your kind of quality of life medicines, and uh, you know they might become more important as the person gets more frail. Uh, then you've got high-risk drugs, so... Uh, you know, and they can fall into either the quality of life category or the prevention category. So, uh, you know, it's, it is very helpful to have a plan. And of course, again, I feel a little bit like I'm a broken record, but making sure that that plan is made with the person or whānau in front of you, uh, that that plan is cognizant of all of those things and making sure that, you know, you don't just blink it stop everything. I think if people are finding this a little difficult, it all sounds too daunting, there are tools I don't personally use at all, but I almost feel amiss not to mention medstopper.com because that was, the Mangan was involved with that. She's a Kiwi who's been about rationalisation of medicines for a long time and worked over, worked over in Canada with James McCormack who's a Pharma, a pharmacist and a professor at uh, University of British Columbia. So they actually have a tool that's online that uh, can help build a plan for you. And, you know, for those people that just think, oh, gosh, this just sounds all way too hard, it might be a really good place to start. You know, you want to consider whether or not a medicine can be stopped abruptly or whether it should be tapered and the benefits or harms of each medicine. But certainly having a plan uh, and the plan being guided by the patient is very helpful. So, Leanne, let's go back to our case and discuss stopping the various classes of medication. Hopefully you can give us some guidance on this. Let's firstly start with that SSRI. How would we approach that? Okay, yeah, so if the SSRI was one that, you know, in your discussions, one that you wanted to stop, uh, you know, I've mentioned that, you know, it should be one that you're looking to taper off, although mindful that fluoxetine doesn't have a longer half-life. And, you know, you're probably looking to reduce at around about 25% every week. But, you know, I really do put a disclaimer on there and I abide by the rate of discontinuation needing to be controlled by the person taking the medicine. And I know, say, like the New Zealand Formulary, they've got some fabulous information on their website around how you would discontinue an SSRI and absolutely abide by it. But I think there's a sentence that says, you may need to return to your previous dose and reduce more slowly. I find that doesn't happen if you allow the person to be empowered and take control and reduce as they as they feel they are able to, you know, to assess their symptoms themselves and whether or not it's tolerable and allow them to make that decision. So, uh, yes, it should be tapered, certainly, you know, for greater than six weeks, you know, is what, what I would advocate. Uh, and, you know, if you want it to be successful to really let the person be in control of that. Excellent point there, Leanne. Thank you. So then the benzodiazepine, what do we do here? Obviously, you know, they're um, one that, 
you needed to be very slow on and, and I guess my previous point around letting the person be in control of that too is really important. I've got a man now who's on one milligram of lorazepam a day and he was previously on five milligrams when I, well, when I first met him. But, you know, it's taken us a year to get there and, uh, you know, just really mindful that he has to not feel anxious about it. I've met people who've come to see me and actually increased their benzodiazepine doses because they've been told by another prescriber that they need to stop it, you know, so they become more anxious about the thought of stopping it and actually use more. So, uh, you know, you do get a rebound insomnia, you do get rebound anxiety with benzodiazepine withdrawal and sometimes people have been on them for an extraordinary long time. So, you know, there are a wide range of withdrawal symptoms of benzodiazepine. So, yeah, go slow, uh, you know, assess the kind of the advantage, whether they've got any cognitive, you know, improvement, if they're more alert, sort of talking to them about improved balance. Uh, yeah, but let, but let them have ownership in it too. We've got a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor amongst um, our medications. What should we do with these ones? So the beta blocker, I would definitely advocate you don't stop that, uh, you know, abruptly. Uh, you know, you do get this upregulation of your beta cells and when that's removed, uh, you know, the the rebound is greater than the baseline. So, you know, that can happen up to a month after cessation. So you do want to do that slowly with people. I, you know, you can look to do it kind of in fortnightly increments. Maybe I'm a little bit more conservative. I think I probably am. But also try and work in with people, you know, especially like, say, if they're on a blister pack or something, you, you know, you don't want them to be incurring extra fees or anything like that. So probably I kind of do it monthly, looking to halve the dose monthly. Uh, and again, you know, like, so if you've got somebody on 190 and you're going to cease the beta blocker, you know, there's quite a few steps in there and I probably, you know, we could have the 190 and you get 95 and then, um, you know, you could then only have to prescribe 23.75s and they take two of those and decrease down from there. But your skills as a, a clinician or, you know, at your own health literacy skills, I guess, as a clinician are, are very important here. I I always advocate that if people aren't understanding what we're saying or following our direction, it's the onus is certainly on us. So I guess I'm a little, I find it a little bit easier if they do it in kind of monthly increments when maybe they're seeing you and, you know, they're not having to come back or they're having to change certainly blister packing or changing, uh, you know, prescriptions regularly. I probably do it a little bit longer uh, than, you know, what you could do it in two weekly kind of increments that there is a rebound tachycardia that you're that you're worried about. And, you know, people have actually died. You know, it's not that common, but people have died from abrupt cessation of a beta blocker. Uh, it is possible to stop an ACE inhibitor without titration. So, you know, there's not that same risk. If the person's feeling anxious about it, you can do it slowly. I haven't found anyone who is anxious about that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the other medicines you mentioned, the statins, I guess, yeah, again, the, there's no need to have to taper, taper there. Uh, I think that's one that Chris Cameron of, often mentions, you know, if you're a frail person, 
really, you know, what we're not looking at long-term cardiovascular benefit here and has that benefit already been exhausted? So you can stop that one. Uh, suddenly I'm trying to think of what else you said around uh, which medicines and which ones you wouldn't want to stop abruptly. The PPI, you know, people do get a rebound acid secretion, so, uh, you know, you're assessing need of that. I think you said the person was only intermittently taking an NSAID, uh, you know, making sure there's no other indication, you know, they haven't got a Barrett's esophagitis, you know, we can look, certainly look to get rid of that PPI, uh, but be mindful that, again, you need to taper, so half the dose, I often tell people to go to alternate days, and then you know, three times a week after that, uh, as opposed to, you know, and really having the conversation too around, you know, well, actually, when you, if you did stop this suddenly, that you can get this rebound effect where you feel like your indigestion is getting worse. So, you know, then we get into a bit of a vicious circle and you feel like you need it and you'll say, Leanne, oh my goodness, what are you doing to me? So, you know, again, making sure that they're aware of what, what the issue is and why they need to taper it off. And then finally, the bisphosphonate. Ah, yes, the bisphosphonate. It's, it's been uh, you know, quite intriguing to me over the years, the concept of a drug holiday when that came into being. We didn't sort of see that anywhere in, in medicine before, did we, of you know, having a holiday. I think people would like that. You'd have a holiday from all your medicines and then go back on them. But uh, I also remember reading the, uh, the data sheet of uh, Alendronate when it first came out many years ago and thinking that they'd made a mistake in the uh, talking in the pharmacokinetics section around the half-life, and I don't remember the exact wording now but it, it said something like in humans it's estimated to be greater than 10 years. I thought good lord you know is that really true? Uh, yeah it turns out it is true so uh, this uh, concept of a drug holiday is premised on the fact that you know there is a legacy effect with bisphosphonates and I guess that was one of the questions you know when I initially when you said how would I approach this I would certainly want to know how long they've been on the bisphosphonate not sure if you're aware, Louise, but the NICE guidelines, they've kind of more recently come out and said that all bisphosphonates we should be looking to review after three years. We kind of had five years in the back of our heads around the oral bisphosphonates and, uh, you know, sort of not thinking, uh, you know, less than that at this stage, although, of course, that's always about trial data. That's just how long the trials were. But they're sort of saying after three years, regardless, there seems to be a benefit even after one year. So looking at whether or not it's still indicated, whether or not it's still helpful in this situation, you certainly can stop a bisphosphonate abruptly. That uh, long half-life, <laughs> uh, you know, certainly enables that. Thank you. That's been excellent guidance. Thank you, Leanne. So Leanne... Is stopping a medication because of age ageist? Oh my, well I think we're all acutely aware of chronological age not being an indicator for function. Uh, you know, I, I 
think of a GP that I worked with in, uh, you know, a Quinn 12-5, holy Quinn 5 practice, and she had come from downtown Manhattan, and I actually spent a day with her well, last year in her practice, and she was seeing 85-year-olds where their tennis game was a little bit off, or they weren't quite able to hold their yoga pose a little longer, you know, that sort of thing, and that's a stark contrast to the people that I see, and again, I'm very mindful that, uh, you know, certainly for Māori, we don't enjoy the life expectancy that others do in this country, so looking purely at age is not a good guide. I think the assessment of frailty is a far better indication uh, you know, that gives certainly sort of an idea around survival and therefore priorities, etc. cetera. Uh, so I would advocate to think more in that space. But I guess the pharmacology training in me uh, doesn't take the eye off the ball in respect of age and totality. You know, like I'm thinking... So as a person ages, things like their albumin decreases. You know, so if you've got a drug that's uh, highly protein bound, you know, the unbound fraction of the drug increases. So, you know, that would apply to diazepam certainly or glipicide, you know. So that's regardless of whether you're still holding your yoga pose or whether you're, uh, you know, multi-morbid person living, uh, you know, with not such a great quality of life. Uh, also, as we age, that volume of distribution is significantly affected. Certainly, your body fat percentage increases as we age. I know this to be true. And, uh, you know, so if your body fat percent increases by 20 to 40 percent and you've got a drug that's lipophilic, you know, that volume of distribution increases. And likewise, you know, the hydrophilic medicines might be reduced. So, you know, of course, you're always keeping your eye on the ball there, renal function you're always thinking of, uh, liver function. I don't think you mentioned which SSR this uh, lady had been prescribed, Louise, but, you know, so I remember the trial data around citalopram when it first came out and they were looking at uh, steady state in elderly as opposed to younger people and, you know, they weren't frail people. But uh, that steady state was about twice as high as what they were in younger people, irrespective of, you know, frailty. So I guess I'm always in the back of my mind. It sounds like I'm hedging my bets a little bit, doesn't it? But, uh, you know, I don't dismiss age in totality, but my focus is more on frailty, if that makes any sense, of course. And, of course, we've got uh, pharmacogenetics added in there as well, which, of course, don't change as we age as such. But, you know, if you've got those physiological changes happening alongside differences in pharmacogenetics, well, then they be, can become more obvious. So in your practice, Leanne, do you see groups that are more at risk of polypharmacy? And could you highlight what groups you see that are of a greater risk? Uh, well, I guess if we're sticking to this definition of five or more medicines as polypharmacy, Evidence does demonstrate that it is more common in multimorbidity, of course that makes sense, the concept of a single condition or the single condition guidelines which underpin all this compartmentalisation occurring and deprivation. So, you know, that's certainly the people that I see most of uh, and people that are 
have multiple prescribers that interface stuff until we get the information technology where all where we are all completely sharing and everybody is on the same page. So people who are in and out of hospitals, I think this is possibly the nightmare of community pharmacists who are trying to reconcile all these different prescriptions, etc. Uh, people, you know, rest home uh, people. People, uh, older adults, I guess, just living alone. But you know, you certainly also want to be on the lookout for the prescribing cascade or inappropriate prescribing, misinterpreting adverse drug reactions as a new condition. And I'm thinking, you know, the quintessential little old lady who's been prescribed amitriptyline for pain and then becomes incontinent. And it's an incontinence of overflow. So you've got that urinary retention. And, they, and, you know, somebody chucks in a bit of oxybutynin. I'm saying that kind of like blasé, but I, I remember that happening sort of 30 years ago and uh, I still see it happening today. You've got two very strong anticholinergic drugs. The, the kind of best scenario that comes out of that is you might get some constipation. You know, certainly the sequelae can be far worse than that. So... You're looking for people who who are multimorbid deprivation. So certainly, Maori Pacific people who are quintile five. You're looking at people who are rest home residents, people who are older uh, people. You're also looking for yeah adverse drug reactions and and thinking about the cascade of prescribing. Leanne, you mentioned Maori as being prescribed differently to other ethnic groups. Can we discuss that briefly? What do you see in our community in the Maori population? Oh my gosh, did you say briefly then, Louise? <laughs> time limit. <laughs> uh, well, I guess then that probably with that disclaimer of uh, briefly, Pharmac, they've uh, given us a most excellent overview of exactly what the situation is there. And I have to give kudos to Scott Metcalf, who drove this initially, who uh, he didn't actually publish the uh, kind of data that came out in 2006, 2007. They didn't publish that till 2013. And if anybody, hasn't looked at that I would strongly advocate they did they what uh, he and his team did was look at medicines that are prescribed according to burden of disease uh, for various ethnicities so well Māori versus non-Māori and uh, the equity line existed in very few places and actually that paper became known as the missing millions prescription so this was where I was getting to, I guess, at the start, Louise, is that we've got this situation of absolute unmet need in this country that does need addressing. It is about equity. And the types of medicines that aren't being prescribed equitably are things like cardiovascular medicine. So we don't want to take our eye off that. That data also talked uh, well demonstrated that medicines that are being over-prescribed are the non-steroidal medicines and significantly so uh, when we did the Atlas of uh, Polypharmacy Atlas of Health Variation, the triple whammy was certainly more prevalent amongst Māori. Uh, so, I mean, there is 
uh, some really great data. Uh, Pharmac have recently updated that same study, or they contracted Auckland University, or Rhys Jones and Jeff Harrison uh, contributed to that. And I've been keeping an eye on this situation over the years, and I couldn't see any demonstrable difference in what was happening na nationally. And uh, certainly they evidence that that is the case, that we still have this inequitable access to medicines. In fact, the gaps actually got a little bit wider over time. So what I'm meaning by that is something like, say, um, atrial fibrillation. More prevalent in Māori versus non-Māori happens at a much younger age. Um, actually, we're not great at you know, sort of anticoagulants and, in, in, you know, suboptimal use across the board. But definitely with Māori, something like gout, much less likely to get allopurinol, yet more likely to get gout. So, you know, there's this inequitable circumstance happening. Uh, and yes, we really do need to make sure that we're not losing that part of the jigsaw puzzle as well. So it's about this optimization, individu individualization that I keep sort of referring back to. Leanne, what strategies do you use with these groups to address the disparity? So I think that people are our greatest untapped resource in terms of managing health outcomes. Um, you know, everyone I've ever met wants to know why they have been prescribed a medicine, how long they are going to be prescribed it, likely side effects, the aim of the treatment. Even a person with dementia, they might want to know, and certainly their whanau want to know. And I really do think empowering is, you know, such a great way of enabling people to be able to manage that. You know, I've worked with komatua around the country who use words like long-acting muscarinic antagonist and they can understand what it did. I had no intent to talk to people about, you know, that level of detail whatsoever, but because they're so wonderfully nosy and want to know these things, you know, we, we seem to go to these places and, you know, for them to understand why as opposed to, look, this, you know, prescriber has given me this and I think they're, you know, just throwing medicines at me, you know, and understanding, and look, I'm certainly not casting aspersions on, uh, you know, subscribers or anything like that. I uh, honestly, I, ha I think it's such a luxury for me to have 30 minutes in a consult. I probably should have said that up front, whereas, you know, GPs have to operate under this 15-minute thing that I do not know how you ever manage. So, um, you know, I do have this luxury of being able to spend time with people and explain to them these things and enable them to feel empowered. I've got men, in fact, uh, you know, a, a gang kind of uh, men that are able to work out their starting allopurinol dose according to EDFR and then for them to understand what EDFR is. So empowering people, I think, is really important. Be really aware of the evidence review medicines and review again, have things changed physiologically, have the priorities changed, you know, we're still dealing with the same situation, you know, think before you're prescribed, is it appropriate, what's 
going to happen if this person does become frail or, you know, having conversations. We used to have a geriatrician who worked for Lakes DHB who took great umbrage at people being told that this medicine is going to be for your entire life. Well, you know, you don't know what's going to happen in your entire life and obviously, you know, physiological reserve changes over time. So having the station with people about this is the intent of the medicine, this is what we're treating, uh, and you know, keeping them and in, informed in, uh, in that way, um, prescribing the best medication to treat the disorder, and you know, not necessarily symptoms. Really thinking of those prescribing cascades. So to conclude our podcast today, Leanne, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please? Well, I guess I think I have to start with what I've been trying to thread through this podcast, Louise, and that to think of optimization, individualization, and inappropriate prescribing. So that can be about under-prescribing as well as over-prescribing. So we need a balanced approach that's fundamentally premised on relationships. Think equity, people. Uh, that's one. That's probably number one. Consider frailty. Classify for it. Put it in your PMS. Also list the rationale of the medicines in the PMS as well. I, you know, kind of my experience, we don't always do that so well that medicines are linked back to condition in the PMS. Don't be enveloped in a clinical inertia state. Maybe even consider an order in your practice. If five plus medicine sounds too much, you could perhaps start at eight plus or even an audit on Say if anyone's on a benzodiazepine and is there increasing usage. I had a prescription put in front of me the other day for a person who's been getting regular benzodiazepine at the same dose, which might on the surface look all right, but they're actually getting it three-weekly now instead of four-weekly. So, you know, this is where you need to start having conversations. What will happen if this person becomes frail? Uh, so you maybe look at something in your practice that could be in order. There are some tools that you could start with if it is sounding daunting. And again, I have to come back, I guess, probably to my last point that I fully acknowledge that I have more time than a GP does. Uh, like I say, 30 minutes for GPs is quite a luxury. And there is so much to think of. There's, there is a lot there. And I know we're heading towards this kind of artificial intelligence aiding us. So they're all tools that we can use. But I think the art is how we, how we apply this knowledge. So I'd have to advocate for considering hiring a pharmacist prescriber and practices or even a clinical advisory pharmacist that you could begin on a pathway into becoming a prescriber, Louise. So I think I'll round off my uh, take-home messages there for today. Thank you, Leanne. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, thank you, Louise. Likewise from me too. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You can also find a list of references that Leanne has mentioned here. Thank you for listening.